Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Uh, good evening. Welcome to uh, Hey on Why. Um, I'm sure somebody explained to you, Mike, that uh, this is all being conducted through the language of heaven. Um, no, it's not. It's fine. Um, but some of us speak it. Um, thanks very much for coming. There have been venues this week where Brexit has been a sort of no-go zone. I went to a comedy act last night, very good one, and they said, don't worry, we're not going to talk about Brexit at all. We are going to talk about Brexit tonight, but we're going to talk about it with great depth and with great breath, with people who are better qualified than almost anyone else to do so. We've got uh, Dr. Mike Kenny here from Cambridge University, and I should say uh, that this event is in association with Cambridge University as part of a series uh, that Hay has with that great university, almost the best university in the world, um, but uh, certainly a very, very good one, and we're grateful to you, Mike, for coming here. Adam Price is uh, the leader of Plaid Cymru. He's a former MP in Westminster before moving to the Welsh Assembly. He's the son of a minor who was educated at Harvard, and he's uh, become a father fairly recently with his gay partner, so a very typical Welsh politician. They're all like that uh, in the valleys. Even more extraordinary, he's advocated a 10% cut in income tax uh, when possible and a cut in corporation tax, which is really radical uh, in Welsh politics. Uh, Lynyrd Morgan, uh, full disclosure, I've known for a long time, uh, from primary school. Um, she was the youngest person to be elected into the European Parliament. How old were you at the time? 27. 27, and she was an MEP. She is now not only having been a member of one uh, legislature, she's a member of two at the moment. She is Baroness uh, Morgan, uh, and she's not only a member of the Welsh Assembly uh, alongside the House of Lords, but she's a minister, and she's the minister in charge of foreign relations. And I'm Gitto Harry, and I'm... A political commentator and all that, who once worked for a blonde who's talked about a bit as uh, a potential prime minister, but we're not talking about him. Well, we'll see uh, this evening. So Mike Kenny um, was a student of politics at Cambridge, but he was telling me this morning that the formative years were when you started teaching at Belfast um, and seeing British politics from somewhere that's looking towards London, not out of London, at the rest of the UK was kind of defining mm. uh, for you, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and maybe that's the starting point. Um, you've been looking at devolution. We have devolved to Northern Ireland, to Scotland and Wales over the last 20 years. And whatever the merits of that, you central to your thesis is that it left us, left us vulnerable to at least some of the forces that delivered Brexit. Yes, I mean, I... Um I suppose we'll say thank you very much for having me here. It's a great, great opportunity to talk about these issues um, in this context. I've, I've talked about devolution, constitution, identity questions uh, a lot um, in the last few years. And I have to say, as you can tell from my accent, I, I hail from England, but um, I tend, well, I always have the best in-depth conversations when I'm outside England, which is itself interesting. I mean, in terms of the question, I, I, I was prompted to think about this by two things, really. I mean, the first was, obviously, we're 20 years since in the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the devolution settlement. And I, and maybe like some of you, was just struck, certainly in England and, and in London, by the uh, unearthly silence 
about devolution that, that I detected. And it did strike me that there's something really quite important and interesting about the, the unwillingness or difficulty to talk about this major constitutional innovation. And the second thing was that um, it seemed to me that in some ways we can be blinded by Brexit. I mean, obviously, as you say, Brexit has created a very intense, passionate set of discussions around some incredibly difficult issues. But it just seemed to me, looking back at devolution, at what the, the state was trying to do when it introduced these reforms, that we ought to be thinking about some of the dysfunctions, some of the difficulties which devolution had created both within the different devolved territories and also, I think, particularly in England. And I think there's a connection between some of those tensions and conflicts and maybe disappointments and what's played through into Brexit. And you think we've ended up basically with a, uh, not quite dysfunctional, though we're vulnerable because of some of the dysfunctionality, but a disjointed constitution where we have different levels of government in different places and no cohesive whole. And uh, at one level, I'm sure we'll come to you two later on, but some people would say that many people in Whitehall are more than happy to say, great, that's gone to Wales, don't have to worry about that, amen, wash my hands of it. Yeah. But one way or the other, you think that that's left us very disjointed. I think that's right. And, and I, I mean, devolution, when it was first introduced by the, the first Blair government, I mean, that seems a long time ago now, um, was, I mean, it was justified as an attempt to deal with a set of issues in the different parts of the UK where nationalisms of various kinds um, were ascendant or where Labour politicians feared that they might rise. So there was a sort of coherence to it. It's very much a political argument, I think, that lay behind it. But, of course, as you know, very different models were introduced for those different places, perhaps rightly so, because Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland are very different entities. But I think what's happened is that that became a habit, and that it became a habit of mine, particularly in London, particularly in Whitehall and Westminster. Uh, you often hear, I talk to a lot of civil servants and politicians there about devolution, and I hear this phrase, devolve and forget. The idea that we do devolution, it's really for other people to maybe have more powers to govern themselves. But the implicit, the assumption is it doesn't affect us. Well, it turns out it does, because at the devolution was delivered and very little thought was given to the whole system, to what it would mean at the centre, to the question of how those different authorities should come together to make difficult decisions. Very little thought given to what it meant for the political parties, particularly the UK parties, which, of course, have experienced these quite profound tensions. And I think, most of all, very little attention given to building a machinery for thinking about shared rule. There was a lot of talk about self-rule within constraints, very little attention to shared rule. And it seems to me that we may now be living with the consequences of that. So devolve and regret, devolve and forget is much more devolve and regret, I think, in some ways. Now that we have the prospect of Brexit and we have the constitution that we have and we have pretty different outcomes in Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales in terms of the devolution referendum and a pretty different kind of approach to it in the devolved uh, administrations there, how vulnerable are we in terms of making it work coherently? And, you know, literally things like sharing out the powers that come back from Brussels, making sure that we do operate as some sort of United Kingdom, some sort of union outside of the European Union, if it comes to that. 
Yeah, I think, um, I think we are vulnerable. Uh, I think Brexit has already accentuated the vulnerabilities that I'm, I'm t talking about. I mean, I think we have to be aware that if we do Brexit, there are some incredibly difficult decisions that need to be made, and those will need to be made in a way that involves the different governments, the different levels of government within the UK. And to put it bluntly, we don't really have an adequate machinery. We don't have a system that allows that kind of coming together co-decision to really happen. We've got some intergovernmental machinery. We've got what is really a kind of very um, undeveloped kind of consultation, which is very much on the British, on the UK government's terms. But there is a review going on of exactly those processes, which I think is a very important piece in this. I think more generally, the, what the row, which you'll recall, the, the very difficult uh, disagreement that developed in, around the question of these powers coming back from Brussels, where should they go within the UK? And particularly those powers that fall within the areas of competency of the devolves and the reflex of the UK government was to say, hold on, we'll hold on to these. We don't, we'll make the decision about these. Now, those powers are important. There are very difficult questions about how we build an internal market within the UK. But the sense, I was struck by the lack of feel for the sensitivities of the governments in Scotland and Wales. And they, the, 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 just the sense of walking into a very obvious conflict, particularly in the case of Scotland, when you have an SNP-led government. We've got lots, this is just the beginning. If we do Brexit, we're going to have so much of this. Very, very difficult decisions to make on a whole range of issues. So one more for you before I bring in our uh, politicians. Um, I find it you know, very paradoxical, but most of those who've been pushing hard for Brexit purport to be great unionists. Um, they, they get very sentimental about protecting the union. But to what extent is it, looking at it as dispassionately as anyone can as a constitutional expert, are they achieving the exact opposite? They're making it more likely that Northern Ireland you know, becomes part of a united island, far more likely that Scotland breaks off to be an independent country. And even in Wales, um, Adam's vision of an independent Wales is, is, is more credible than it's ever been. Mm. I mean, I think, um, I mean, to put it at its most polite, I mean, the, for a number of the Brexiteers, th these issues have come as a complete surprise. I and mean, there clearly has been incredibly little thought given to, um, to these questions. If you think about the campaign itself, um, certainly in England, I mean, I, I could count on you know, one hand the number of times Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland were mentioned. So there is, again, I think, a very indicative lack of forethought, lack of awareness of how these questions might play out in other parts of the UK. But I think this question about whether people want to pursue Brexit over and above being a unionist, I think that what we've seen is it's become a bit more complicated. I mean, I've been doing some research, trying to talk to a lot of uh, quite senior people in the Conservative Party, trying to talk to MPs about what they think of the union. How do they understand this union? Why is it important to them? And what it's been really striking is that all of them say they are unionists. All of them declare to me they are passionate unionists. And what is also clear is that they understand that the union in utterly different ways. I think the sense that there is a sort of clear notion of what it means to be a unionist now and how we should arrange the union has gone. And that's what I think is being unearthed by Brexit. I think 
it was a very important moment within the recent Brexit drama around the withdrawal agreement when Theresa May pivoted away from no deal. And it looks as if she did that because actually I think the implications for Northern Ireland really were brought home to her. And the prospect of a hard border and perhaps even of direct rule returning and what that would do to the nationalist community and its, its feelings in, in the six counties, I think became a huge issue for her and for some other Conservatives. But of course, it's complicated because Brexit is about priorities. And I think there is no clear vision within the Conservative Party of which is more important to them, particularly amongst the, the ultra-Brexiteer group. Do they want Brexit at all costs or really are they still the Conservative Unionist Party when it comes to it? And when you see, I promise there wasn't another one for the time being, but when you see a lineup of leadership wannabes tweeting yesterday that there will be no independence referendum in Scotland on my watch, that shows a very shallow or lack of, total lack of appreciation of how counterproductive that will be in Scotland. It's not exactly a persuasive case for choosing to remain part of a union to say, I'll just deprive you of the opportunity, is it? No, no. and I mean, you know, clearly Scotland, the, the Scottish government has been uh, making noises about and is planning now to develop a, a, a framework piece of legislation. It's, it's not contrary to reports rushing to demand a new um, independence referendum because it faces a dilemma. It has quite a tricky dilemma about whether this is exactly the right time to push that. But I agree with you. The response was very telling. And, you know, what needs to be thought about within the Conservative and Labour parties, the UK parties, is what now is going to be the offer to Scotland? If they don't want the momentum to build up for another independence referendum, what are the parties going to be able to offer to Scots that's coherent? And also, how do you respond to this demand? I mean, it's going to require a much more nuanced response than, no way, you can't do it. I mean, we've seen from other contexts, particularly Spain, what happens if you sit, if you just take that very hardline position. So, I, you know, this is an issue that is very likely to come back to haunt them. Right, Lynette, nobody could fault your enthusiasm for devolution to Wales, nor your enthusiasm for membership of the European Union. Um, so how much of a shock was it for you when Wales voted Brexit? And how much of a setback do you think is that for devolution in Wales? Well, I was one of the few who wasn't shocked because I was one of the few who was campaigning on the streets and it didn't look good. Uh, and oddly enough, it didn't look good in the places uh, where they were telling me that the issue was immigration, where there were basically very, very few immigrants. So there were a few in the hospitals looking after the people uh, of those communities. Um, so in that sense, it was, uh, it, it was difficult to, to absorb why that was happening. In communities which have benefited massively. So it, it is, and it should be a different story in Wales. We are net beneficiaries, 600 million pounds a year additional into the pockets of, of the Welsh because of the European Union. That's a, it's a very different proposition compared to what was happening in England. And yet, and yet still the people of Wales uh, in a majority voted to, to leave. And I think what's difficult is that Actually, we have always been a European nation. Back from the time of David Apgwilim, was was influenced by uh, literature from, from the continent. Owen Glyndŵr made uh, great alliances with the French. Huge sacrifices made in both world wars. Uh, 
and, and then, of course, the European Union provided the structure for us to cooperate with not just the continent, but with the rest of the United Kingdom. And then devolution came, and we come out to this very new world, uh, which Whitehall has simply not appreciated, has moved on. And that's part of the dilemma that we're facing now. And if you think about, for example, the fact that we will now be negotiating trade deals for the first time in 40 years, they will be negotiating trade deals, for example, with the United States of America, where those American companies, health companies, will want to come into places like Wales with their privatized companies. But we run the health service in Wales. They can't sell off that negotiating capacity uh, because we simply won't implement it. And the structure to develop and to negotiate what a future trade deal will look like whilst respecting devolution, the mechanisms simply don't exist yet. We'll come back to that. But on the basis that Scotland went its own way and actually chose a different kind of government and a different party, they actually voted a different way in the referendum as well. To what extent do you accept that it's a, you know, a bad indictment of, of Labour government, unbroken Labour government in Wales, that Wales basically rejected Europe when given a chance? I don't think it was a, an indictment on, on the Labour government in Wales. I think over the years, um, all political parties have been guilty of taking the glory for European funding and European projects and putting the blame on Europe uh, when that was convenient for, for each domestic political party. In, in that sense, I think, yes, Labour's got a degree of responsibility, as do the Conservatives. Uh, but uh, what we need to, to do now is to see, hopefully, there will be an opportunity for us to, to talk again about the benefits and to make sure that people have an appreciation of how it has benefited their lives. A quarter of a million people in Wales have received training thanks to the European Union. Now, I bet most of those people weren't aware of that. And so I don't think we did a very good job of communicating the, the impact that it's had directly on people's lives. Adam, has, has the attitudes that were shown by the Brexit referendum in Wales shaken your belief in Wales as an independent nation that should be governing itself? Because it's shown itself to be far more in tune with the angry, supposedly dispossessed of England than it has this brave new nation that wants to go its own way. Well, there are two things uh, going on simultaneously in, in Wales at the moment, isn't it? And uh, so, so, so obviously there, there is uh, deep and widespread support for uh, uh, Brexit, uh, the Brexit Party, and, and for a, for a political project which, you know, it, it is very much counter to the the prevailing values uh, of you know Welsh politics over the course of the last century. So there is that on the one hand, and that very much is aligned with what's happening in England. So uh, uh, Michael's thesis is interesting in a sense because what he's saying is that Brexit largely was a response to an Eng the English problem, the fact that. The English, possibly, you know, the English working class, but English rural areas felt that, you know, where is our devolution? Where is where where is the politics that speaks to uh, speaks to us? And Brexit comes along as a proxy for that. Well, how does that explain what happens in 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 Wales? Well, I think you know, Brexit is where two insecurities uh, collide: economic insecurity and insecurity about identity. Uh, and and in a sense. 
um, Michael has set that out in England. In Wales, um, the, the, the economic insecurity is clear. Those communities that have been left high and dry, and, and, I, and I feel that there was a failure. I mean, devolution was meant to deliver economic justice to those communities. The phrase that was used was the devolution dividend. There has been no devolution dividend in terms of economic improvement for those communities. So you can't actually then turn around and blame them if they if they are actually seeking a political change project. Now, I what I've said is look. Brexit in Wales was the wrong answer to the right question. The right question is how do we prize ourselves out of this rut of poverty? Now, I don't think we do that by putting our faith in the likes of Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson, because that's the fail uh, you know, formula of putting our faith in Westminster politicians. The alternative change project is Welsh independence, and that's why there are these two phenomena in, in, in Wales, and they are in direct co uh, competition with each other. So we've seen the rising support for my party and for Welsh independence, and ultimately that is the battleground for Welsh politics in the future. It's going to be a battle for the soul uh, of, uh, of Welsh politics, if you like, and you know, uh, I hope that you know, my party knows a little bit more about the political soul of Wales than Mr Farage. And Mike, apart from the arguments among politicians, structurally, we have an unresolved um, constitutional settlement. We have a truncated devolution process, is essentially what you're getting at. And we need to decide which way do we go. Do we go fully to a sort of uh, a happy family of nations with a federal structure so that each feels they have a vested interest in the other's success and we work it out between us, the unionist, but very, very progressive unionist kind of vision, or we all decide to go our separate ways and some of us may want to go back into Europe with that. Is that how you see it and how important is it that we resolve that? Well, I, I think it's critical. I mean, I, I think if you, if you think about it very broadly, um, in, the, in the context of Brexit, there are three paths we can take. I mean, it could be, on the one hand, that we break apart. I mean, I talk about um, these are, you know, what we've got are different political communities that are moving in different directions at different speeds. And it could be that continues for some of the reasons that, that Adam's given. Um, a different, the completely opposite proposition would be to say that actually what happens, which I think is there in some conservative minds in, in Westminster at least, is the idea that we recentralize, that we actually look again and we, we take our precious union to mean that um, what we need to do is to put more powers back at the center and that we limit or place constraints upon the devolution settlement. I don't sense a lot of political will behind that, but I think that some of the, some of the, the, the positions that have been taken around Brexit are implicitly of that ilk. But I think what's much more likely is the third, is the middle position, that we survive by changing, by reconstructing and reconfiguring this union, which, of course, for all its flaws and, and dysfunctions, which I've talked about here, has merits and actually does, has over many years, commanded the loyalty of a majority of people within the UK. And the question now is how it can best be structured, how it can be organised so to do, to do that. Just a word on federalism, because that... that is often a kind of catch-all term that people go to, and it's very understandable because, in a way, we've been moving in a kind of federalising direction. The problem with it is this concept called parliamentary sovereignty. And you cannot build a federation in the British system whilst you retain the idea that parliamentary sovereignty is the organising political concept within our community. And that is where we are stuck. Devolution was a brilliant piece of fudge 
it fudged that principle and it, it entrenched an alternative idea, which is that, oh, actually, we've got multiple sovereignties, that there is power and there is sovereignty now being recognised in other parts of the UK, but we've also got parliamentary sovereignty and the right of Westminster somehow retains the right to roll back the settlement, which in practice, of course, it's very unlikely ever to do. That fudge has, is, is no longer up to it. And Brexit, if it does anything, I think, means that we probably have to find a way through that and make, again, some very difficult decisions. In practice, there was an assumption, wasn't there, when power was devolved, that somehow Labour, well, the people of Wales and Scotland would continue voting Labour. That was one of the reasons it would work, because there wouldn't be a clash between a Labour government at Westminster, one for successive general elections, and Labour administration in Scotland and Wales. And You've, um, you've kept your end up in Wales kind of thing, but in Scotland, party was crushed, and that's created the imbalances, and it's created the big, glaring discrepancy. I, I think we've got to have some kind of context to this, though, and understand that there are, are UK values that, that people hold dear as well. The fact that we have an NHS that is, is really, really loved across the whole of the United Kingdom. And what strikes me as being odd is, is that... That, that people will, would be willing to, <clears throat> to cut off from their nearest neighbours, and, and yet they're very anxious to reach across the ocean uh, to the European project. Uh, and, and if we can't work together on this small island of ours to really work towards confronting right. some of the major issues of our time... Can I, can I, can uh, I address that very directly? No, I understand, I understand the point. So uh, I, I think my starting point, right, uh, uh, Tom Nairn wrote a famous book, didn't he, about the breakup of Britain in the 1970s. My starting point is Britain is already broken. It, you know, the, the, the institutions, the, all the political institutions of the British state are broken. I mean, look, look at Westminster, the shambles that we've seen over the last three years, right? So Britain is gone, you know, right? Okay, we, so we have to rebuild a different kind of Britain. Now, I think how we do that is we do it on the basis of equality, not the, uh, as, as Michael was saying. The problem with this centralist version of the United Kingdom that we've had, which puts um, you know, parliamentary supremacy in one parliament, is that we'll always be imbalanced. So what's wrong with, actually, I, I agree, we, should, we, we share an island, uh, we share islands across with the Irish as well, we want to cooperate, but what's wrong with doing that as equal independent nations? And the same way that the Benelux countries you know, cooperate together, etc. What's wrong with that, rather than this idea of a, of a top-heavy centralist system where one nation will always be able to outvote us. I mean, you know, we can have Welsh MPs, as happened with Trueriness, because we've been reminded recently by all the murals. We will always be outvoted in that parliament. Why can't we have independent nations then pooling sovereignty equally as partners across these islands? We're, we're generally... We're generally not a, a revolutionary kind of people. And what you've seen over the past 20 years is considerable power move from Westminster to Wales. And you, you think how closely uh, fought that first election was and, and how by a hair's breadth that we won that first referendum. Um, I, I think that you actually, what this has proved is we've got to bring the people with us. And this gradual approach that we've had towards devolution has actually worked. We've won the people over. The devolution project is something that is now accepted by a majority of the population. Ironically, about 14% of the population of Wales 
Wales want to see an end to the Assembly, about 7% of the population want independence. So let's get some perspective on, on where we're at as a nation and what we desire as a nation. Now, what I do think that we need to do is to to look again at the intergovernmental structures and to make sure that, for example, there is a, a, a neutral secretariat that is preparing uh, what should happen at the, the four-nation level so that it's not the UK government writing papers for when we're going to be discussing trade bills, but actually we all have a say in, in w what that looks like. Mike, I know you're aware that you are on the border here, so if you try to second-guess where the audience are, it's quite hard to do. You'll, you'll have um, people from each side of the border uh, nearby. But one of core to your thesis is whether we appreciate the benefits in Wales and whether they appreciate the benefits in Scotland or not. Mm. The perceived benefit, Scotland and Wales, of devolution is resented quite deeply and profoundly by a lot of people in England, with some justification, you think? Well, I, I wouldn't want to overstate it. Um, I think that um, I think you've got two different things that have been happening in England in terms of the sort of sentiments, you know, at, at the sort of bedrock level, how people feel about about how they are governed in in the last ten years. I think. There's been resentment directed at specific features of the post-devolution settlement. So the, the perception about public spending and the, the, perce the perception that Scotland um, gets a kind of undue, uh, unfair deal compared to the English. That's a very strong sentiment, certainly in parts of Northern England. Uh, also, I think you can't underestimate the importance or overestimate the importance of those moments. Remember back in the, in the Blair years, when controversial legislation was passed on the back of, it applied only in England, foundation hospitals, tuition fees, on the back of Scottish MPs' votes. I, I actually think there's very interesting evidence. The West Lothian question. Uh, the West Lothian question <coughs> did arrive as an issue um, in English consciousness. So you've got, you've got some grievances. I, I mean, actually, the English, for the most part, are profoundly indifferent to these sort of questions. Um, I think, actually, they're, they're less indifferent than they were, and I think that's an interesting sort of aspect of Brexit, which we can come to. But the second thing that's collided with this is a lot of resentment in England, actually, about the same thing that many people in Wales and Scotland resent, which is London. So one of the biggest shifts in terms of public attitudes is growing disenchantment in what we now call left-behind areas. That's a really marked trend, and the perception outside London, outside Manchester, that this is a system that just does not look like it's delivering. What about the electoral system? Because you have you know, a million votes in Scotland delivering 50 SNP MPs, yeah. Parliament before last, and you have 8 million votes for UKIP and no MEP? I, I uh, think no, no, no MP. No MP. Plenty I, of MEP. 4 million. 4 million votes, four million and, votes and no MP. Yeah. I think actually that did, that did yeah. hit home. I think um, you know, there, there's, there's rarely... I mean, you know, it's not that that's the kind of front-page news um, in England, but I think those questions do all feed into each other. I do think there has developed a sort of generalised sense of mild grievance around devolution. I wouldn't want to overstate it. Um, but I think the perception of some of the English is, look, you know, we're, we're, it's our taxes that are going up there that are enabling Scotland in particular to make these kind of um, social policy choices, choices around healthcare and access to healthcare that we, we ourselves cannot. So I, I think these different sentiments come together. 
Um, I think I'd, the only thing I'd say is I'd put it in a wider context, which is actually the union works in part on, on the back of profound tolerance within England, the sense of actually, you know, OK, fine, we don't really care that much about other governing arrangements. For the most part, the English have been content to be governed from the centre. I think that's maybe the biggest shift we're seeing now, is just a sense of it grievance about that model, but I don't see any clear direction of travel, any alternative that's being offered by any of the parties on that issue. So Adam, if you were to take charge in Wales and you were to cut income tax, the object of the exercise would be to essentially attract businesses that may base themselves in Cheshire or Shropshire or Gloucestershire or basically the other side of the border, Herefordshire, to come this side of the border because it would be beneficial, the same with individuals. That would create, whether it worked in Wales or not, that would create enormous resentment, wouldn't it? Well, no, no, look, While still yeah, being uh, uh, centrally funded for core expenditure, my, which is my, the plan. My, my basic approach to, to you know, the economic predicament that we found ourselves in, actually, for, for, for countless generations right, in Wales, is that what Wales needs is not charity, but help to help ourselves. Uh, we, need, we need levers in our own hands in order to drive forward a, a better future for ourselves, because salvation will never come from elsewhere. Uh, and uh, you know, th uh, and it certainly won't come from Westminster. So, so those economic levers, fiscal and, 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 and uh, indeed monetary, if we were independent as well, could allow us to actually do what m most small nations have done in Europe, which is actually uh, most of them have, have started at some point. Uh, even Switzerland, believe it or not, uh, at the bottom of the economic league table, and actually was able to craft an economic strategy that's, that actually. Uh, responded to their unique advantages or their unique attributes as a nation, and we can do the same as well. In terms of um, uh, income tax, well, what we could do, right? We could be the first country, people have talked a hundred years, economists have said, like, let's do a land value tax, it's the most efficient tax possible. There have been some experiments uh, to some degree, but we could be the first nation that actually shifts fundamentally uh, from income tax, which is mostly a tax on employment, uh, to uh, a land value tax, which would enable us actually to be both socially redistributive, so it would be a, pro a progressive policy aligned with our values as a nation, but also have the advantage of being able, enabling us to make ourselves an attractive place to live and work for young people, young entrepreneurs, some of them returning because we've got a brain drain from Wales, coming home to Wales and saying, look, actually I can build my business in Wales because you know, one of the, one of the reasons that we, it's not an economy based on property, because that's been the problem of the UK, hasn't it, over many, many generations. It's actually an economy which is based on talent. And you know what? We're going to actually tax uh, land and actually not tax employment to the same degree, and that'll enable us to create a new economic dynamic. Uh, and, you know, all those digital entrepreneurs thinking, right, how am I going to build a team? Come to Wales. Uh, where um, uh, you know it's it's cheaper to live, and actually you can actually make a future for yourselves. And there are a whole host of other policies that we could uh, we could actually uh, invest in education by retaining some of that revenue through the land value tax. We could actually flip where we've been for the last few years. We underfund schools, colleges, and universities in Wales at the moment compared to England. We could turn that on its head and say we're going to invest in human capital, the talent of our people more than, more than anything else. Those are the kind of things that you, 
you want a Welsh government to do. The point of having a Welsh government is that we're driving those levers. We're actually being ambitious. And yes, we are following policies which are different because they're responding uniquely to the problems and the opportunities of Wales. What's wrong with that? It is strange, Lynette, isn't it, that, um, <laughs> that the Labour government in Wales have always asked for more powers. You have the power now to vary taxes, but you are neither putting them up nor down. You know, does that not sort of speak to a, a lack of vision or a sense of direction at the top? Well, this, that was a commitment made at the last uh, election that we wouldn't change them during this term, and you'll have to wait to see what happens uh, in the next manifesto. But, but I think uh, what is important is to remember that actually there is a £16 billion gap between what we, we, we raise in Wales and what we get from, from England. And uh, we, we, can, we can play fantasy economics if we want, but the reality is, uh, if we were to be independent, who would pay the pensions? And there is a bottom line there that we have to acknowledge. Now, that's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't be doing more to drive the economy, and that's what we're doing. We're investing in skills, but also we are protecting and supporting uh, our, our population. And, and it's absolutely right, I think, uh, that, that what Michael was saying, that, that actually some of, of our choices are actually causing resentment in England. And you'll have seen just in the last couple of days the amount we spend on social care compared to England is... is clearly now going to upset a lot of people. Those are political priorities and political choices that are being made, but that is what devolution is about. It's about us deciding what those priorities are. And if someone like William Rees-Mogg was to become Prime Minister, the differences would be even more stark, perhaps? They would, <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. I think what's important is that, that we can dis determine what those priorities should be. That's the devolution can I, can project. I, can I just ask, Alina, uh, I mean, I'm sort of dispute the figures on the fiscal gap because actually that's not the fiscal position of an independent Wales, uh, even tomorrow. But, but look, I accept there is a fiscal gap and that reflects the fact that we've got a, at the moment, an, a, an economy that's at the bottom of the league table. But would you accept at least that we should uh, have as a policy aim, an overriding objective of the Welsh Government, closing that fiscal gap? Absolutely. I think there's, there's no question about that. And as a government, of course, we'd sign up to that. Uh, yeah, and, by and, and we have policies in place to help to deliver that. We are investing millions into skills. We are, have 100,000 apprenticeships this term. Uh, these are all uh, really targeted at those growth areas where we do need to attract skills. And, and the thing that's become clear to me is that actually what does attract people into our country is the skills rather than the grants so, and the, 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 so, the way so, that... So, so the Welsh, the Welsh Labour government is committed to closing the gap that you've just described. If you're successful uh, at that objective, would you accept then that Welsh independence then becomes a feasible option? I, I don't want Welsh independence. I'm proud to be a member of the UK Union. So irrespective of the, the, the fiscal viability of this country, uh, I am proud to be not only Welsh, but also to be British and to be European. So and, the, and the, and the point is that the that. vast majority of the people of Wales are in precisely that position.
So, so that's the, your real objection. It's not an economic one. It's because you, you actually don't want uh, an independent Welsh nation. I don't want an independent Welsh nation. I'm proudly British, and as well question, as being proudly Welsh. And a quick question for me as somebody who is a Welsh parliamentarian, member of the Senedd. Where do you feel that the voice of Wales is heard most loudly? At Westminster, where you sit in the second chamber, or in Europe, where you sat for many, many years? Or equally loud in both? I mean, the institutions are, are fundamentally different, and the way that they, they operate are fundamentally different. If you want to influence within the European Union, uh, there, is, there is an easier opportunity to do that as an individual MEP backbencher, I think, than there is in in uh, Westminster, either as a backbench MP or, or in the House of Lords. Right, chance for your questions um, to any of the panel. Um, but if you just uh, wait for a microphone and then address the question to one person in particular, we'll start down the front, microphone heading your way, and then we'll stick in the front and then we'll go over here if there's anyone with a hand up over here afterwards. Thank you very much. Um, Edmund Marriage. Um, I can think of about seven very good reasons why people decide to vote leave and want to break from the European Union. I haven't heard any one of those really important reasons during our discussion here. I think it's been introverted into the concept that nationalism is the harbinger of hate and distrust. And we must avoid nationalism and must be looking at what the European Union is tried, trying to do, has tried to do, but has failed for a whole number of reasons not least of which is the fact that uh, they want to control everything. They want Wales just to be a region of Europe, um, and that's one reason. We and, your question, and your question, sir. The question is, can you think of a very good reason why any of you would want to leave the European Union? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... Um, the wrong people. Uh, I think, Mike, to be fair, well, first of all, we, we, we explained that the basis of this discussion is not to revisit those arguments from three years ago, but to look at how well equipped we are constitutionally now to survive as a United Kingdom outside of the European Union, whether we have the structures and whether people in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and indeed across England actually feel their voice will be loudly enough heard at Westminster. Mike, do you want to say anything in response to yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's easier for me as the non-politician on the panel to answer that. I mean, I, I, what I'm here to do is try and um, sort of get a... Can we get a better understanding of how these things have worked? Now, I mean, if, if I look at the evidence for why people supported Brexit, you are right that, that people supported Brexit for a whole range of different reasons. They also supported Brexit because, actually, if you look back at the opinion poll data, which I, as a nerd of these things, have done, um, actually, levels of Euroscepticism in Britain have been high for most of the period since we joined. So it's not that we suddenly discovered that, um, we, that lots of people dislike the, the being a member of Europe. I mean, there, there is a historical tradition here. There are lots of different reasons, and I think what's, what's striking about the debate, to say this as a kind of neutral here, is that... Um, it does seem to me that, that one of, whilst we've got very locked into a discussion of either how to deliver Brexit or how to you know, get out of the conundrum and maybe have a second referendum, what I don't see, as much as there ought to have been in the political world or in the academic world, is a really serious attempt to understand why people voted for Brexit. So in that sense, in that sense only, I'm sympathetic to what you say. Right, over there. 
Thank you. Uh, Adam, this is a question I'm afraid addressed to you. Uh, you are a man of impeccable progressive credentials, socially and economically. I just find it difficult to understand how a policy of tax arbitrage sits comfortably with you personally. I, I don't see how a land value tax and a shifting, uh, a shifting taxation uh, from taxing employment, basically taxing jobs, onto the biggest source of unearned wealth that we have is, is a regressive policy. I mean, it's a policy that has been uh, advocated on the left for many, many years, and there's a huge opportunity for, for us. Uh, you know, it, 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 as well as being socially just, it w would have, of course, uh, incredible dynamic impetus to our economy. So, you know, I, th I think it's, it's, a, it's an excellent opportunity for us to follow. So, I don't Over understand, but I'll see you in the barn afterwards, Ian. Over there. <laughs> so, as a lifelong Labour voter who lives in Wales, perhaps the, um, uh, the, the Labour Party um, representative can, can explain to me why I should vote for Labour rather than Plaid Cymru um, if, I want to, uh, if I want to avoid the appalling prospect of a no-deal Brexit at this point in time? Well, it's easier for me to answer that this week than it was last week in Wales. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're right, I think there were many, many frustrated Labour supporters who are die-hard Remainers who were um, frustrated by the Labour Party's position. I'm really pleased to say that the First Minister in Wales now has uh, actually suggested that we would uh, now, because of the changed circumstances, because of the fact that we are uh, looking at the prospect of a Conservative leader who is happy to take the UK out on a no-deal uh, basis, that actually the only thing left on the table is to go back to the people to, and to, to, to fight to remain within the European Union. And that's been ver made very, very clearly now by the, new, the, the First Minister. But the key question is, of course, is, is uh, what's Jeremy Corbyn uh, saying? And, and even, even now, we've heard, you know, he's getting closer, but even now he's refusing to say if he won a general election, uh, you know, whether the, where, where, how Labour would campaign in that referendum, you know. So why doesn't he come out? You know, I welcome the U-turn on behalf of the Labour leader in Wales, but where is Corbyn? Uh, the Remain parties. Clearly, I think I've got to get their act together. It, we, could, we could be facing a snap general election. Um, we, um, I think we've got, to, we've got to find a way of working together inside Parliament, uh, critically. I don't include Labour currently as a Remain party because we haven't got that clarity. But the other Remain parties, we've got to work together, I've written to all the leaders today and said, let's meet and, and even discuss the possibility of putting together a Remain alliance uh, so that at least is on the ballot paper a clear Remain choice at the next election. Gentlemen over there. Yes, um, I actually resigned from the Labour Party two weeks ago, having been in it for 50 years. Right? And I'm not the only one, but one cultural question and one constitutional question. If you look at nationalism in Scotland and Wales, it moved from right-wing conservative or crypto-fascist in Wales to socialist. But if anything in England, it's gone the other way. It's become increasingly fascist anti-immigration. And that's a cultural difference which confuses things over nationalism. So I'd be interested in comments on that. 
The constitutional question is, it seems to me, cities in the UK are now becoming more important than the country of England. And cities are comparable in size and cultural identity to small countries. And do actually a city-small countries approach represent a different way of looking at the union? Adam, do you want to go on the first one and then, Mike, on the cities business? Uh, yeah, a, a tale of two nationalisms, certainly. I mean, I think we've, we, we've, we've seen that not just, in, uh, not just in the UK with the kind of civic, progressive, uh, outward-looking, forward-looking uh, nationalisms of Wales and Scotland and contrasted with this right-wing xenophobic reactionary project, uh, which is sort of the, the Brexit ideology, uh, which of Mr Farage and others, right? It's, it's actually, um, there's, an, there's an echo of it in Spain, isn't there, where, where you have Esquerra, the Catalans, uh, um, you know, who've just won uh, the mayoralty in Barcelona, progressive, pro-European, uh, civic, etc., versus the rise of Vox in Spain and fascists uh, elected to the Spanish parliament. It is a phenomenon right across the, uh, Europe, and almost, I, I feel, maybe we need a different word to describe our uh, I ideology in our party and in, in the SNP, because, you know, nationalism doesn't cut it, uh, possibly, when you have these two competing nationalisms, there's a confusion there. But they come from very, very different uh, uh, sources, don't they? And, you know, ours is, is a progressive and optimistic uh, politics about, you know, the future being better than the past. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of right-wing Farageist uh, politics, of course, is the opposite of that. It's turning the clock back to uh, an, an England stroke Britain that frankly never existed, of course, you know. Um, but, but yes, and I, I think it's interesting, uh, the city-state idea, because in a sense, uh, the Saunders-Lewis, we, we, we can have an argument about Saunders-Lewis, but Saunders-Lewis, interestingly, Afterwards. Uh, he wrote a book called Principles of Nationalism, saying actually the problem is nationalism. So we're the only nationalist party in the world. That was, its founding statement said, the problem is nationalism. Before nationalism existed, nationalism of the big states, nationalism of the Tudors, which abolished, you know, which uh, banned the Welsh language. Yeah, the nationalism as an ideology of a central state that wanted to create uniformity and the idea that one culture, one language is better than another. In, in, in a sense, ours is an anti-nationalist nationalism that just wants equality for everyone, diversity and inclusion, etc. And in a sense, move, moving back to that world where we had a patchwork of small nations and city-states, and we didn't have this ideology of these large imperial states, which I think is where what Brexit is trying to hark back after. And uh, Mike, one. One, one, one issue with the SNP in particular is when they last advocated independence, independence was the route to being isolated in the world. Mm. They are now advocating independence as a way of being ongoing members of the European Union after a short break. So that's turned the argument on its head, doesn't it? Because being a unionist in Scotland now is the equivalent of being a supporter of a Brexiteer taking us out of Europe. It, it does change the terms of the argument. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, you know, nationalism comes more generally does come in different shapes and sizes and different guises and is always expressed in different kinds of political ways. And I'll, I'll come back to the SNP, but I, I've got to say something about your characterization of English nationalism, which is just erroneous, it's just wrong. I mean, the data does not bear that out. Don't confuse some politicians with how most people feel and feel about their, 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 their national identity. 
What you see in the data is very clear that people begin to feel more strongly about their English identity. I think it's a combination of things like globalization, devolution, in fact, begins to unearth a sort of uh, a greater interest in what it means to be English and maybe some forms of assertion around that. You never see more than 20% of people who fit your characterization of Englishness, whatever is happening in the political class. What in fact has happened, one of the reasons I think we do collapse wrongly ordinary Englishness with the politicians is because the liberal left are allergic to Englishness. They are absolutely fearful that this must be a xenophobic, ethnically focused national identity. And what they've done is forgotten the very rich traditions going right back into the 19th century of socialist forms of English patriotism, liberal visions of England. And actually, it's become self-fulfilling. If you think like that, you leave the national imaginary to people like Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. So I think actually we should be very careful about those characterizations. And I'd say the same to an English audience about the Welsh, just so you know. <laughs> on, on the SNP, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, the question is, whilst in some ways I think that's quite, a, quite an attractive pitch to some of the middle class voters that they will certainly need to bring into the independence tent, I think what cuts across it is that actually they too, they have the same challenge that Labour have, that, that about a third of people who support independence in Scotland actually support Brexit. So the SNP also face the problem of trying to marshal this coalition, which is partly what's going on in relation to, to, to UK Labour. But also, in policy terms, independence is a tougher pitch this time round because potentially you're saying, well, we'll leave you may be outside two unions, and it immediately, of course, raises the currency question. Now, I'm not saying that's insuperable, and I think Nicholas Sturgeon is a great communicator and persuader, but I think the terms of the argument for independence in Scotland have shifted, actually, quite radically. That is it. And Lynette, I've got to put it to you. Um, the Labour Party, currently led by people not only from England, not only from London, but essentially from Islington. You've got a leader from Islington. Okay, the shadow chancellor is from about five miles away. Diane Abbott, who'd be Home Secretary, is bordering Islington. Keir Starmer is bordering Islington. And uh, who's the other one in the mix? Emily Thornby is Islington. You have an Islington led Labour Party, Guardian reading, it's exactly the scenario described. No wonder that votes in the north of England have hemorrhaged, and South Wales, have hemorrhaged away from that Islington, Guardian reading sort of clique to somebody who looks, despite being a stockbroker, despite being rich, despite having a German wife and German passports for his kids. Um, incidentally, just had to drop that one in, but despite all that, he feels more real and close to them than the Islington clique that leads your party. Well. Certainly, I think it's not just the Labour Party, but the UK generally, the civil service, is, is very, very London-centric. And but that's why the they, Labour haven't Party get like understood, that? Uh, they haven't understood devolution, they haven't understood the, the, the project. And the fact that nobody saw the uh, referendum result coming actually just speaks volumes in terms of you know, the, how that they haven't been listening to people outside of London. They were all the chattering classes speaking to each other. I think in terms of, of identity, and that's what we're talking about today, is, is there are hosts of reasons why people voted for Brexit. Lots of it was about austerity, about globalisation, about lack of control. But, but some of the analysis just proves that actually identity was an important factor. And if you look at uh, the analysis done by Richard Wynne-Jones, for example, the academic from Cardiff, he suggests that 
uh, Welsh speakers, 85% of them, uh, voted to remain. Now, I think part of that can be explained because actually people are more comfortable having multiple identities. And that's where we need to go as a nation. We need to be comfortable in being Welsh, in defining ourselves as Welsh, as defining ourselves as British, as defining ourselves as European, in particular within a globalised society. And in order to do that, we need to construct uh, a, a civic society to, to feel like, like they, they belong. And it's very interesting, if you look at the, the, the analysis, that the number of people who define themselves as British or English first, actually there was a, a huge difference, about 50% of them said that they wanted to see Brexit. So the difference was very, very marked. And it, it, this is why uh, many people are saying that actually Brexit was an English issue uh, because the, the vast numbers of people in England who are voting for it. And let's not forget that, that in Wales, we are, we are very different from Scotland. We, 60% of the people in Wales live within an hour of the border with England. We are very comfortable to have English neighbours. Many of us come from England and are happy to have that kind of relationship. So it's not something that we should be hiding behind, not something we should be running away from. In fact, what we should be doing is saying, if you live here, you are part of our community, you are accepted as Welsh. But people, until they start to define themselves, it's very interesting that that analysis really suggests that the moment you, you define yourself as Welsh, you are more likely to uh, vote for Remain. Can I mention one thing which you haven't done? Not a very extensive social cohesion. Social cohesion. We'll come back to you. But the lady, lady behind you has got a hand up, and then we'll come to you afterwards. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, may I congratulate you, Eleni, because I know you've been a passionate Remainer. You seem to have been everywhere on the streets of, of Wales. So thank you for that. Um, I was in Edinburgh last weekend, and there is a question. Later. I was in Edinburgh last weekend uh, at an alliance meeting of all the former coalfields, and the amount of um, agreement and fundamental passion uh, for our communities shows a real cohesion across, you know, the very fact we were all British and we were all facing the same terrible dilemma for our communities post-European funding. And with the Share Prosperity Fund, there's no confidence that that will ever come back to us. But my question is this, isn't this the moment for us to be proud of the progressive politics we've had in Wales, but also to have a unanimity so we can project to the world that we are a unified British um, islands and therefore stronger because what makes us, what keeps us together makes us stronger. Now I'm going to take question. the question from the front because you also want to talk about social cohesion. So we'll just get a microphone to you down the front and then we'll answer the two together because we are almost out of time. Thank you. Doesn't the panel, panel agree with me when I say that there is a relative social cohesion in the European Union? And if you, if you look at the imperial British state, you have an extreme uh, class, English class system that's imposed on the rest of us. And this pyramid structure has existed since Anglo-Norman times, and we're now living in the third millennium, and we still have this exploitative class system in, in, in our 
within the imperial British state. And one thing that really did um, uh, make me angry regarding the um, the pension in capable of paying for the paying for our state pension. Well, that's according to the Tories coming to, to an end anyway. And what about the ten reservoirs that supply water? Right. To, to okay. And we're not paid a, a, a bronze farthing for this water. This is stolen. Okay, okay, we're going to have to stop you there and we're going to have to all be brief, but essentially what you're asking is, is the union a progressive force that brings benefits that we share? That's something you're advocating essentially, or is it something that holds us back and we need to break away from it? So we'll start with you, Leonard, we'll go to Adam and then we'll give the neutral voice the final sort of academic blessing, cherry on the cake kind of thing. Leonard, you go first. I think the union has provided us with one of the best insurance systems in the world. When you're sick, you are looked after by the state. If you uh, are unemployed, you are supported. If you uh, are, are old, then you get a pension. That doesn't happen in every nation in the world. And we should take that for granted at our peril. That's what progressive uh, governments are about. What we must do is to make sure that that is not eroded. And the more we separate from each other across the United Kingdom, the more that is under threat. And that's why progressive people within uh, this community, I think, should be supporting a union that provides that immense and protective insurance system. Uh, hang on now, you're not on stage. Adam. If, 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 if the United Kingdom was meant to be our insurance system in Wales, then we should sue. We were, we were, a hundred years ago, we were one of the, the wealthiest countries in, on the planet in terms of our natural resources. Look where we are now. That's their legacy to, to us. We are, we are the country where life expectancy is fall, life expectancy in an advanced industrial economy is falling faster than any other nation in Europe here in Wales. We're the only country in these islands where child poverty is actually rising. Think about that, right? That's the reality of this so-called United Kingdom. And the only way we break that century uh, of deprivation is if we take power into our own hands. And Mike, it's down to you to square that circle, I think. <laughs> well, I've been trying with what my final neutral comment could be. Uh, <laughs> Take sides. I will. Uh, I can't break the habit of a lifetime. I would say this. I mean, it builds on, on both the points, maybe, or reflects on both. If, I think it is an if. if. If we are going to have a union that survives Brexit and the various challenges, maybe existential, which we've talked about, but also is able to deal with some of the very deep challenges that, that, that Adam's talked about there, of social inequality, of growth, um, we are going to have to find a way, we're going to have to find better mechanisms, a better system for ensuring that the, the risks and the rewards that are generated in this country are shared. And I, 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 mean, I, mean, I think it is about pooling risk and reward. That's the best argument for the union, and arguably when the union has worked well, it's actually managed to work in a way that means that it's not just about cities. Somebody mentioned cities and should, should are cities now the engine of growth in the 21st century economy? And the answer is yes, they, they are. The problem is if we just let cities like London govern themselves or we, we allow them to become com almost completely autonomous in fiscal terms, we will, that's the nearest, quickest way to break the union because what the union has been about is, sh is trying to share 
those rewards, those returns across different kinds of plays. And what worries me is someone, I will come off a fence, who does believe that there are more achievements and downsides to the union, is that the system in quite deep ways is failing to do that. And that the divides we're seeing, the disenchantment, the distrust, is related to a growing sense that people do not feel that the system is working for them, that the union is actually providing that kind of sharing. And unless we really get into those issues, I think actually we're heading into a difficult place. Mike, Adam, Lynette, Thanks very much. And thanks to you, the audience. Thank you.